This is Perspectives, the show where a conversation about our differences often ends up showing us how much we have in common. I'm Condis Presley. On the program today, a conversation about growing up black in America. My guest is Bakari Sellers. His memoir, My Vanishing Country, is top 10 on the New York Times bestseller list. He made history back in 2006 when at the tender age of 22, he defeated a 26-year incumbent state rep to become the youngest member of the legislature in South Carolina and the youngest black elected official in the country. He currently offers commentary on CNN. Bakari Sellers, welcome. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's a blessing uh, this Father's Day holiday to join you. Um, and, and thank you for allowing me this platform to, to share. You have covered the news of the day, and I know that you were in Minneapolis for the Floyd funeral. You've seen the marches and the protests not only there, but in all 50 states and in countries around the globe. What is your take on this very dramatic moment in our history? Well, the first thing is we have to frame it correctly. And I want people to understand that this is not about George Floyd. This is not just about Ahmaud Arbery. This is not just about Breonna Taylor. But it's about 401 years of uh, institutionalized racism and systemic oppression. And uh, George Floyd and Ahmaud and uh, Brianna, uh, you know, were the proverbial straw that, that had broken the camel's back. And so people are marching for just um, in all phases. I am, um, I, I am heartened by um, a lot of the activism we're seeing. Um, I'm heartened by uh, many of the cultural changes that we're, that we're seeing. But I'm also reminded that progress we've made is certain, but we still have yet a ways to go. Bakari, you know, Atlanta now in the national headlines after the death of Rayshard Brooks. Our community is torn in a really delicate place right now. What are your thoughts on our mayor, Keisha Lance Bottoms, and how she has handled the situation? Well, you know, I think Keisha, uh, Keisha Bottoms has done an amazing job, not only uh, being a counterbalance to uh, Governor Kemp uh, during uh, this COVID escapade, but she's also displayed leadership uh, when the uh, protests came to Atlanta. Um, and now during this moment, this is a very difficult moment, and it's going to be a challenge for Keisha, but it's one that I believe that she can handle. She's well-suited to handle this. Um, one of the things she's going to have to do, though, is be very proactive in the way that she um, transforms and reimagines her police department. If I were advising Keisha any conventional thinking, I would throw it out of the door. And any fear you may have of police unions or any fear you may have of, of old uh, police ties, I would throw that out the door. Um, and I would start um, reimagining how policing in the city of Atlanta should look from ground up. You know, Atlanta is a is a very, very uh, black city. Um, and it's been that way um, for a number of years, a number of decades. I went to Morehouse College. Um, now, the best four years of my life were spent in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, I actually worked for uh, Mayor Shirley Franklin, uh, um, who is one of my favorite uh, public officials of all time. Um, and I can just say that I have faith that Keisha will see this through. Um, but she's going to have to reimagine um, the way that, that law enforcement is going to interact, particularly with, with communities of color. Um, and she can do some things um, in Atlanta uh, that could be a marker for the rest of the country. How long overdue is this particular conversation? It's <laughs> uh, since before I was born, around before my daddy was born. I mean, this is a conversation that, that one that we've always been afraid to have. This particular conversation around police reform um, is, 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 what's the saying, as old as the day is long. Um, you know, it's, it's just, it's something that, that should have been done for a very long period of time. I mean, I, I, you know, just 
for example, in the city of Atlanta, this reforming its use of force practices, banning chokeholds, um, um, having civilian oversight, having transparency in what the guidelines are, reporting um, misconduct charges um, against law enforcement officers. Um, uh, you know, just those are just some of the things that we can do. Um, you know, racial bias training is not enough. Um, um, that's not enough to think that you're going to root out a culture or a system of injustice and oppression. Um, but throughout the country, um, you know, I am um, slightly disappointed in how big individuals are going. And let me let me be clear about this because I want people to understand where I'm coming from. In, in 64, 65, you had the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act. In 68, you had the Fair Housing Act. In 2015, um, you had the Confederate flag come down. Um, all of those were, were bold, big, historical, cultural shifts in legislation and policy. And um, they brought people together um, for those initiatives. The reason those things happened, of course, was because blacks flowed, flowed, and, flowed in the street. And every time we had um, any of those huge occurrences in our country, it, it requires black blood to flow. And so I'm hoping that city leaders, county leaders, state leaders, and those individuals in the United States Congress actually hear that and go bold. Um, this is not the moment um, whereby you can crawl into changing a system. Um, this has to be big, bold, progressive change. How optimistic are you about the two pieces of legislation that are currently being introduced in both the House and in the Senate out of your state, South Carolina, with Senator Scott and with Congressman Clyburn? So, I mean, I, I believe that Tim Scott is going uh, to do his best in, in that position that he's in, in that Republican caucus. I, I am, um, you know, it ain't enough to be blunt. I mean, uh, it's picking around the edges. It's giving the illusion of change. Um, we have a saying, I know, I don't know if y'all say it uh, down there in, in the big city of Atlanta, but as country folk, we always say something when something's worthless. We say that it's about as good as a, a ashtray on a motorcycle. And this is this is about the equivalent of, of that, the piece of legislation that the uh, Senate Republican caucus wrote out. Um, I am hopeful that um, that's just the beginning of negotiations and we can meet somewhere in the middle um, because that's what has to be done. I mean, and we and I, I'm, I'm pushing back on my Democratic friends who say, well, if they don't give us what we want, we'll wait until January. I'm pushing back on them because we can't afford to wait until January. Because at the rate black men and women are dying in the streets at the hand of law enforcement, if we wait until January, that can be another five, six, seven bodies that hit the street. Um, and I, I want to do everything I can to make sure um, that we're not taking more fathers away and mothers away from their children. I do want to talk about your book. Today is Father's Day. You've got twins. What is the world that, you know, you want them to grow up in? So they're, they're 17 months old. So they're a little bit, they're like at a weird stage. They're toddling around and they are making all of these demands of us. And they, they wake up every morning and smile. And um, it's just, it's a, it's just an awesome feeling. Um, fatherhood is, is unlike anything you've ever felt um, before. I have a 15 year old stepdaughter who is, unbelievably brilliant um we we're just on the tamron hall show together that um she myself and my father having three um generations of people who are in the struggle in the movement uh, my daughter just recently had to go to answer your question directly my daughter just recently not had to go but wanted to go um in protest um and she went out and she had her black lives matter sign on she had her mask on she had her girlfriends with her and they went out and protested all day long. 
And I was so proud and so sad at the same time. Um, it was an innate sadness because, um, unfortunately, my daughter has to um, put Black Lives Matter on a sign and she has to go out in the streets and yell at the top of her lungs to reaffirm that her life has value in this country. And I wish my daughter could um, live a life like a Baron Trump or any other white kid that they simply can um, uh, be treated with the benefit of their humanity and not have to fight for that. Um, I want my children to be free. Um, that's my goal. I want them to be free to achieve not only the American dream as set out in life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, but I want them to be able to achieve things like justice, understand what truth is, and love and peace, those not-so-tangible ideals that are promised in this country but um, are vanishing because they're not promised to us all. And so we have a lot of work to do um, to make sure um, that my children can grow up, uh, and they deserve to grow up in an America better than the one that we have today. When did words like negotiation and compromise become untenable in our society? Uh, <laughs> this is sounding weird coming from a CNN commentator with the um, with the saturation of uh, social media and cable news, and uh, you know, I think that people um, now uh, uh, no longer seek out the truth or have any level of individual responsibility. Um, um, when it comes to that, instead, they we retreat to silos and we only find news and friends that reinforce our own views and own values. Um, we no longer meet people where they are. <clears throat> sometimes, and I say this with every ounce of humility and respect, sometimes we need to shut up and listen. Um, we need to listen to other people's stories, listen to other people's pain, listen to other people's trauma. Um, that's the, we, we have an empathy deficit in this country and we won't fix that empathy deficit unless we gain some level of understanding that's important and essential. And it's something that from the top bottom, from the top to the bottom, we've been missing in this country. How do black people have these conversations with white people who are open to the conversation, understand that it is and will be a difficult one? understand that the system isn't broken, that it was built this way 401 years ago? And how can black people help bring the community together with understanding so that there can be positive change? So that's an interesting question. That's actually a really, really, really good question. And I push back on it slightly because I don't think it's on black folks to cure this country of racism. I think that our white listeners and friends and coworkers have to begin to have very difficult conversations with each other. In those difficult and uncomfortable conversations is where um, you find humanity. It's where you find understanding. Um, and then, and only then, will be will we be able to um, cure ourselves of the you know and, and answer those age old questions. The most difficult conversations we've ever had to have in this country are around race. Um, and, you know, I wrote this book, My Vanishing Country, and one of the things I wanted black folk to get is a sense of pride and understanding and, um, you know, recognition of our perseverance uh, through my story. And when white folk read it, I hope they get a sense of understanding, um, understanding of what it means to be black, understanding of the pain and trauma that's associated with that experience. But in having these conversations, I can tell you, to be honest, I'm a little exhausted and tired of the conversations that require me to uh, deconstruct one's privilege for them. 
Um, I'm tired of having conversations where, um, you know, I have to lay out the instruction to cure racism um, to others. Um, I think good people uh, with good hearts and like minds and spirits of change uh, have to have those conversations amongst each other if, if we're ever going to make any progress. In your book, My Vanishing Country, Bakari Sellers, you write about the crisis affecting the other forgotten men and women. Who are they? You know, one of the things, and in the media, we, we talk about this, and I believe you would agree or concur that when we say um, rural class, um, and when we say rural, excuse me, we mean white, and when we say working class, we mean white. And I wanted to put those notions on their head because I wanted people to understand that we have a black working class, particularly those of the South. Um, I wanted to lift up those voices. Um, you know, the women who uh, go to church and sit in the first two rows and have those really big hats. Um, and when you hug them, you smell like Chanel number eight all day long. Um, and they cook, uh, they cook uh, sweet potato pies or coconut pies and put two sticks of butter in them. Um, but when they hug you, it, it, it nourishes your spirit. Um, they're always there for you. Um, I wanted to give them uh, a voice. Um, those those old guys who sit at the barbershop and never get a haircut, but they're there telling you the stories about how good Sonny Liston used to be back in the day, and they've seen everything. They remember when King came to town. They played a role in the movement, and they have so much wisdom um, that when you listen to them for those 30 minutes to an hour, you come out smarter. I wanted to lift them up. And so there are a lot of voices around us, um, voices that, go, that are going unheard that I just wanted to uh, um, give my platform to and, and raise up. And I think that there are a lot of those voices that um, have stories to tell, especially during this time. Something tells me your father is is one of those men. Tell me about him. Yeah, my father's a hero. And I, you know, I say that I was really blessed to grow up in a household where I had a hero in my kitchen every day. My father was a member of SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. Uh, my father uh, was shot February 8th, 1968, along with 28 others. He um, three young men were killed that day, Henry Smith, Samuel Hammond, and Delano Middleton. Um, all the officers who fired shots into a group of students were tried. They were all found not guilty. My father um, was arrested, and he was deemed to be an outside agitator. And they charged him, tried him, and convicted him of rioting, and he became the first and only one-man riot in the history of this country. Um, you know, I talk about uh, him going to prison um, and the pain of my family, my mom and dad at the time. My mom ended up becoming pregnant, um, uh, and my father then went off to prison, and she had to carry that baby and birth that baby, my my big sister, their oldest child, while my father was in prison. Um, and it was just so much injustice that this country and state, uh, South Carolina in particular, reaped upon my family. Um, and just living with that trauma and emerging from that trauma. Um, he went to Philadelphia, Mississippi to search for the bodies of Goodman, Turner, and Cheney. He I was very close with, with King, of course, but his best friend was Stokely Carmichael. And Uncle Stokely was really, really close to our family, so much so that um, my, my, my boy twin, uh, his name is Stokely. So every time I call it out, it's, it's a very strong, powerful name that I call through the house. Um, and it just gives me hope to, to call out the name Stokely. So uh, my father's a hero, and, and uh, there were a bunch of heroes who were part of my village. I'm a product of the proverb, it takes a village to raise a child. And those civil rights icons and legends are part of that village. Were your father's legacy, your Morehouse years, contributing factors to your desire to create change through initially public service? There's no doubt about it. My parents gave us an option. They said you could be anything in the world you wanted to be as long as you were a change agent. 
And I decided to, after working for Jim Clyburn and after working for Shirley Franklin, I decided that um, being a change agent um, through policy was what I wanted to be when I grew up. And then I asked myself, if not me, then who? And if not now, then when? And so I was 21 years old when I launched my campaign for the South Carolina State House of Representatives, running against somebody who was 82 years old and had been in office longer than I had been born. And, uh, you know, we, June 13, 2006, after knocking on doors and going out and uh, going to many churches, I became the youngest black elected official and the youngest state legislator in the country, all from the big city of Denmark, South Carolina, where we got three host stoplights from Blinken Line. That movement, uh, my father's story, uh, the challenge of being a change agent, all, um, and, you know, Uncle Uncle Julian's story right there in Atlanta, Georgia, all compelled me to go into, it all compelled me to go into politics and, and, and try to shake shake the, the fundamental structures of oppression and systems of oppression in our country. But now you're an analyst, an advisor, uh, working on policy and whatnot. Uh, talk to me about making that shift in that transition. Well, just this week, we celebrated the five-year remembrance of the Charleston Massacre. Um, and, uh, it was the death of, of my good friend Clemente Pinckney, um, and eight others in the Charleston, um, church. And, um, that's, um, when I began to first have my voice heard on the worldwide, um, platform and just speaking that pain and giving words and voice to that pain and giving words and voice to so many. Um, and it was a very difficult time. And, um, you know, I, I got hired by CNN soon after that, and I've been ever since then trying to give those individuals who, um, who showed us I stand on, give them a voice. And it's, it's, it's so, I'm so blessed to be honest with you. Cause again, I'm from a town where we had three stoplights and a blinking light. I'm an HBCU graduate, um, of Morehouse College. And I go out every single night and I get a chance to talk to a million people and share with them my views and my perspectives and my truth unvarnished. Um, and I will be completely honest with you. My, my, um, my number one goal is, is just to make you proud, um, and to make the folk who poured into me so much, make them proud. And that's what I continue to do every night. I'm on CNN. We're five months out from an election, had a conversation with former ambassador Andrew Young just the other day and his guidance now to this movement is again in the advocacy arena but being registered to vote and participating in the process. What are your thoughts? So, I mean, this is, you know, we always say that the most important election of our lifetime. Um, and that, that phrase and um, verbiage, sometimes it just, it's not true and it wears thin. Uh, and I say that and I preface that to say that this is literally the most important election of our lifetime. Um, and, uh, you know, I am... I am telling all of my friends that we have to do a better job of uh, giving people a reason to vote, not just telling them um, what not to vote for. And one of the I, I, one of my goals over the next five months, because um, you, you've done the math for me, one of my goals over the next five months is to go and speak to black men. Um, as difficult as that challenge is during this COVID time whether or not it's virtually or digitally, speak to as many black men as I possibly can uh, and message to them and listen to them about the things they want from their government and how they want their, their, their government to work for them. Um, because for far too long, black men have been left out of the conversation. Um, and we are seeing the results of that, whereby now many black men are becoming swing voters. And I think that 
Um, we need to ensure that uh, we're messaging to black men and we, we're getting them engaged in the process. And that's something that I'm doing um, every single day. What do you mean by swing voters? I think that uh, what you saw in 2016, where 13 percent of black men voted for Trump, I'm not necessarily worried about them because that's insanity. I'm worried about uh, the voters who decided instead of Trump or um, Hillary Clinton, they voted and elected for the couch. And I think that, uh, you know, we have to do a better job of making sure people come to the polls. There were four million people, four million people who voted for Barack Obama in 2012, who did not vote in 2016. Of those four million people, over a third were black. Um, that's 1.3 million black folk who voted for um, uh, Barack Obama, who didn't show up to the polls um, in 2016. And I, I just think, and remember Hillary Clinton lost by 100,000 votes, I just, in, in three separate states. I just believe that um, uh, therein lies the path to victory, therein lies um, the way that we create change. And I want to make sure I'm doing everything I can to talk to those voters. Yeah, I remember when reading Michelle Obama's book, Becoming, she said that, that she took that very personally after so many African-Americans, black folks came out and voted for her husband that they chose the couch in the 2016 election. That was they thought they we thought we'd done so much work and then apparently not. You touched on it. COVID. We still are living in a pandemic for which there is no vaccine. There is no cure. And it is a virus that has a disport, has a remarkably negative impact on black people. So when you're out there talking to people, whether in person or virtually, encouraging black people to go to the polls and to vote, how do you encourage them to do that and stay safe? Well, I tell people that safety is the first thing. And so one of the things that I'm doing now, and I mean, in, in Georgia has become the, it, it, was, it was once, uh, it's amazing how cyclical these things are. It was once Wisconsin, um, but Georgia has taken the, the banner of being a state that practices voter suppression on levels that are only equal to from the 1950s and 60s. And so I'm, I'm hopeful that people will vote early. I'm hopeful people will vote absentee. Um, I'm hopeful people will uh, uh, read up and become as knowledgeable as possible about the process and the means and the wares of how, how they can vote. Um, I'm encouraging people at all times to wear their masks. I'm not wearing your mask. It's just not really an option. Um, one of my do- one of my children, my, my youngest daughter, is immunosuppressed. And I tell people that wearing a mask is not for your health. It's for the health of everyone else around you. Um, and so, um, you know, I'm, I'm very encouraging, especially of black folks, to take, um, take their health seriously. Now, I have to use this moment as well to say um, I had to push back on our United States Surgeon General, Jerome Adams, be very clear that the reason black folks are dying is because of years of systemic inequalities that have gone unaddressed. When you're drinking dirty water, you're inhaling unclean air, when you're living in food deserts, when you don't have access to quality care, and then you have a pandemic, it's no secret or no re- it's it's very easy to tell why you are uh, the ones who are who are dying at higher rates. And so I want to be extremely clear about that as to the reason why but we just have to take care of ourselves as we're addressing this crisis and we're saving the saving democracy. Could not have put that any better. The book is My Vanishing Country. The author is Bakari Sellers. Uh, besides watching you on CNN, Bakari, how do you interact with your readers, with your viewers? Well, first of all, I'm very thankful to you 
Um, let me just say, you actually lifting me up and giving me this opportunity, I'm grateful for. You can find me on Twitter at Bakari underscore uh, sellers. You can find me on Instagram at Bakari sellers, one word. Um, please go out and support. You can click on Amazon or you can uh, you can go to your local um, bookstore, um, wherever books are sold, to pick up My Vanishing Country. I'm very thankful for all the support we've gotten so far, and this is my truth, and I hope people enjoy it. Perspectives is a community and public affairs program crafted with you in mind. If there's a guest you'd like to hear interviewed or a perspective you think should be explored, let me know. If you're old school, just write me. 1601 West Peachtree Street, Northeast, Atlanta, Georgia, 30309. Or message me via social media. I'm Condos Presley on Facebook, Condo29 on Twitter and Instagram. Thanks for listening. Be sure to listen again next week at this very same time as we examine another perspective. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.